Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Our signature theme was composed by Greg Learhoff. Here it's always Saturday night. And tonight we're delighted to celebrate Stalag 17. And I'm pleased to welcome our guest, media strategist and head of talent at Rosenfield Media Group, Stan Rosenfield. Welcome, Stan. Hey, Steve. Hey, Ben. How are you guys? We're doing great. And, and I have to tell the audience that Stan was one of the first person, one of the first people who gave me a job in Hollywood. I arrived uh, with a very wet nose on his doorstep to be a kind of a trainee publicist at Stan Rosenfield and Associates in 1979. That's when it went. Wow. That's, okay, then. So 42 years ago, I think. Uh, and uh, Actually, no, 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 let's see. Yeah, it's actually 43 years ago. And I didn't know anything about public relations. Uh, I had been a writer. I, had, I think you were impressed with the fact that I had a two-page article in the LA Times calendar section on where had all the James Bond women gone. And I think that got me a job as a writer on your staff. And... Um, that was 42 years ago. I mean, public relations media strategy probably has gone through so many changes in the last 42 years. Is Are you still having fun? I'm still enjoying it a lot. Uh, I don't know if I've had fun, but uh, I, um, you know, uh, we do what we need to do, and I do enjoy it. Uh, uh, when people ask me, uh, do I have any plans to retire? I immediately tell them to go wash their mouth out with soap. Retire to what? I mean, I enjoy what I do. Uh, in fact, I don't remember who it was. Uh, prior to uh, opening up my own company, I used to work for a guy who uh, at that time had one of the three leading PR companies in Hollywood or showbiz. And... Uh, Always at the Christmas party every year, somebody would say, well, we made it through another year. So that's my goal again this year is to make it through another year so we can do it again. Come back tomorrow to do it again. Well, think, you know, for people who don't really know public relations too well, I mean, back in those days, you would send me over to Hank Grant, the columnist's office, to drop off an item on a piece of paper so he could publish it in his column when there was a daily trade paper. Well, actually, it's funny that you would say that. Uh, when I tell my staff that we need to do uh, items, they look at me like, oh, what was it that Gary Coleman said in uh, Different Strokes? What are you talking about, Willis? They had no idea what I'm talking about. And uh, we would go down uh, every day, and uh, every account executive had to do you know, anywhere three to five items per day on uh, our clients and uh, uh, your position would have to drive them down to the trades. And uh, that's what we did. And we talk about the changing of the PR business. If you stop and look at it going back one year, uh, it changes so often. I mean, if you look back a year from now, you go, well, what did we do then? Are you kidding me? I mean, it's, uh, I mean, the word social media I remember the first time I heard that word. I didn't know what uh, it was. Dan Abrams, who I heard it from, uh, the uh, uh, legal 
a reporter on ABC. I'd never heard of the term. I didn't know exactly what it was. I didn't know. I mean, it's you can stay away from our business, as in most businesses, for an hour and a half and come back and you have to start all over learning. No, it's so but certain true. things don't change. And one of the things have to do with you, Steve, Ruben. Um, it was a custom back in those days, as I guess it still is, is to give the office staff Christmas presents. And you gave me a Christmas present, which was, I, I don't know if you remember, uh, but it was basically a pen and pencil set. It might just have been a pen. I don't know. And I called you into the office <laughs> and I said, Steve, this is not the gift you give to a boss. And you very correctly said, Stan, I don't have a lot of money like you guys do. And I have a budget and this is all I could have afforded. And I said to you that you're looking at it wrong. It's not about the money. It's about the thought that goes into it. And about a week or so later, you came into my office and you handed me this little package. And you said, this is your Christmas present. And I opened it up and it was a, um, it was a poster of Stalag 17. And it probably cost you maybe three or $4 to buy at some, one of those shops that sell this. And it probably cost you another, I don't know, two or $3 for, to have it framed. And so for under $10, you gave me the best present that I, well, with the exception of uh, uh, my personal love interests has ever given me. Um, you gave me one of the best Christmas presents or presents I've ever received. And I still have that poster framed. It's in my office now. And um, I don't know, about eight or nine or 10 years ago, I'm having lunch at uh, this restaurant next to my office. It must have been before that because this we moved offices in 1972. So it had to be somewhere in the late 60s, maybe early 70s. And in walks Billy Wilder. And I went up to him and I said, I'm try not trying to uh, impose, but I have to tell you the story that it indirectly affects you. And I told him the story I just told you. And I said, Mr. Wilder, would you be offended if I went next door to my office and brought the poster in and asked you to sign it? And if you look at that poster today, in the upper right-hand corner is the signature of Billy Wilder. That's a great story, Stan. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thank I, you for I, doing what you did. Well, you know, um, you and I, we talk to each other every so often, and we kind of refer to each other lovingly as Hoffy, referring to a character from the movie. But it's just kind of, this movie means so much to us in terms of pure enjoyment that I, I said to myself, you know, we need to just get on the air and celebrate our love for this great movie. Uh, and of course, you now have that Billy Wilder connection, which I, I'm very envious of. Billy, Billy was such a larger than life presence in the movie business. I mean, uh, very seldom do you just love almost everything a director does. And Billy is one of those directors. Um, now, why was he coming into your office? No, he wasn't coming into my office. He was coming into the restaurant, which oh. was next door to my office. And, you know, that's where I saw him. And, of course, uh, for those who are listening, uh, Billy Wilder is looking the 
dictionary under the words super legend and there he is and if you don't know who billy wilder was um uh, uh, go go see some of his uh, films and each one is a classic uh, even greater than the one before so true so true when uh when you were growing up uh, first of all what, where did you grow up in what city i grew up in uh oklahoma city which everybody says what, what what's a jewish kid doing growing up in oklahoma city and i go well let me tell you i went to a high school and here's who was in my high school not at the time i went there but um the uh senator from massachusetts she was there she was there several years after i left in my uh the class above me was um uh, an artist that time magazine a couple of years ago said it was one of the most 100 um, most important people in the world. And that was Ed Ruscha. Uh Mason Williams was in our class who wrote Classical Gas, uh, if you know Smothers Brothers show. Uh, so we had quite an assembly of people that went on and became uh, made names for themselves. Uh, but on uh, Friday night, we would go to the theater to see the movies at the Will Rogers Theater. And uh, uh, Sunday or Saturday afternoon, we would go uh, to another theater and watch uh, various uh, movies that were first run. And I saw Stalag 17 with my parents. Uh, and I knew, I knew nothing about it. And one of the things that I found interesting thinking back on it is that I thought I would guess who the uh, spy was. And um, I had a guess and I was wrong. Um, and I think that the nice thing about Stalag 17, which really impresses me most about the movie, is that uh, I watched it again last night for the specific reason I was gonna time certain things, that we did not, the audience did not find out who the spy was until about uh, the movie was 60% uh, complete. Uh, so like at the, it's a two hour movie. So it was about the hour and 15 mark that we found out who the spy was. And the way that we found it out at the way Billy Wilder positioned, the way we found it out was really incredible because we didn't know, we didn't know who the spy was. We kind of figured, uh, uh, it wasn't going to be William Holden because everybody says it was William Holden and uh, it would be kind of anticlimactic if it was William Holden. So if, if you haven't seen the movie, I did not give anything away by saying it was William Holden, but I won't mention who the spy was in any of this conversation. And uh, it was really interesting the way Billy Wilder showed you, showed the audience who the spy was. And he did it with a look on the spy's face. And you just kind of follow the look and there it was right in front of you. And uh, I, as I say, I watched the movie again last night and I didn't pick that up at all that I would have guessed who the spy was. There was uh, one actor who uh, had uh, white blondish hair and you couldn't look any more German if you wanted to. and. Um, uh, I think he's probably the spy because he's he looks German and uh, but uh, so all, all, all I can say is Akshow. 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 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, Dick Cavett, who is a, uh, I assume your audience knows who Dick Cavett is. He's one of the great uh, commentators out there. He once said, I love old movies. They just don't see them, seem to make them anymore. And every time I see um, Stalag 17, I saw it 100% last night from start to finish because I felt I owed it to you and your listeners to do my homework. But at least once a month, I go back and I look at, it's not the last three minutes of the movie, it's in the last 10 minutes, but there's a three minute scene in there, uh, which starts off with the words, two packs of cigarettes, Dunbar never gets out of the compound. I think it's probably the best three minutes of film ever made, ever directed, ever produced. And uh, just, uh, just wait for that line and uh, it's well worth the wait. Uh, I saw that before I knew I was going to come on uh, your podcast tonight. I, uh, I took, I take a look at that three minutes every so often. I saw it again last week and anyone who is around me, I make them watch that because it's, it's a classic. It's what they dictionary defines as a classic. Well, it's interesting because, um, you and I are kindred spirits because we like revisiting the classics. And, you know, there, there are always interesting movies being made by Hollywood. But I have to say that storytelling was just for my money a lot better in those days. Now, interestingly, I read a recent uh, interview with Quentin Tarantino. And Quentin is certainly a master of good dialogue and certainly interesting productions, but he does not like the 1950s. For some reason, he thinks it was not a high period for Hollywood. I, on the contrary, feel that the 1950s is a fascinating period of Hollywood. And thank God for Turner Classic Movies, because I can go over there and I can see movies from the 50s frequently. How do you feel about movies today without uh, uh, having the people with the pitchforks come to your house? Um, I agree with uh, you about movies of the 50s. I have a list of my 10 favorite movies, and I have not ranked them one through 10, but they're clumped. And obviously, Stalag 17 is in the top one. Um, and uh, many of the movies uh, were movies in the 50s. In fact, I have a trivia question that named three movies that the director directed that he redirected his own movie. And one of them would be Frank Capra in uh, uh, Pocket Full of Miracles. He redirected the movie uh, in the 30s called Lady for a Day. One Alfred, Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock in The Man Who Knew Too Much, right. which he redirected under the name of The Man Who Knew Too Much. And the third one, most people never guessed. So I'll, let, I'll tell you, it was Cecil B. DeMille, who did both the talkie and the silent version of Ten Commandments. Oh, very true. And interestingly, let's see, uh, uh, Ten Commandments was 1956, as was The Man Who Knew Too Much was 1956. And... Um, uh, Pocket Full of Miracles is one of my favorites. Sure, and that 61. Was, uh, uh, you know, it, it was, there's just an awful lot of really good film. But getting back to Stalag 17 for a moment, uh, I can't think of any movie, and maybe you can, Steve, because you study this far more than I do, um, that 
on a whodunit on how the audience finds out who did it. Um, sometimes it's not until the final scene. And But here's a movie that's 60% through the movie, we found out who did it. But that's only half the half the um, the journey. The other journey is the last three minutes that I spoke, or not the last, in the last 10 minutes, but the three-minute film that the person who everyone thinks did it has got literally three minutes to present his case and get the barracks, which is nothing but sergeants, and Stalag 17, and Stalag's, Stalag 17, of course, is Stalag is German for prison camp. Uh, he's got three minutes to turn these guys who hate him into allies. And we, we, should, we should set the table a little bit. Basically, if you haven't seen Stalag 17, the setup is we're in a German prisoner of war camp in December 1944. The Battle of the Bulge has begun and it's near Christmas. And we're introduced to a group of characters and the main character played by William Holden, who won the Oscar that year for best actor. He plays J.J. Sefton, a sergeant who's a bit of a uh, he's a bit of a <laughs> he's a, a character. He, he basically where everybody's scrounging for for basic food. He's got a footlocker that looks like Macy's basement. I mean, he's got he's dealing with everybody. He runs the gambling games. He runs a bar. He runs the telescope. He's uh, a, as as cookie his. His uh, associate says he was a big time operator, always scrounging. And uh, eventually we discover there's a spy in the barracks and everybody thinks it's Sefton. And I did a little research uh, and I talked to some people who know Billy Wilder's uh, filmography a lot more than uh, I know. And the film that um, one of the films that Billy did just before Stalag 17 was a very cynical film called Ace in the Hole with Kirk Douglas, and you know it, I think it was also re released under the title The Big Carnival. And uh, I think this is in a very cynical period of Billy's filmmaking because uh, three years earlier he had done Sunset Boulevard uh, with William Holden. But apparently, according to my friend Avi, uh, Billy Wilder's first choice for Sefton was Kirk Douglas. And Kirk Douglas had gone to see the play, this was based on a play written by two ex-prisoners of war. So it was very much based on actual happenings, if not, if not specifically these happenings. But Kirk had gone to see the play in New York City and was not impressed by it. And he was unaware of what Billy wanted to do with this stage play, which was to, to augment some of the comedic sequences and change things around. So Kirk passed on it. From what I gather, the second choice was Charlton Heston, but Charlton Heston was not considered a big enough name at that time. So uh, he went with the actor who, of course, who had scored so well in Sunset Boulevard, William Holden, uh, who's just one of my all-time favorite actors. I don't think anybody could have done that role better than William Holden. What do you think, Stan? I 100% agree. In fact, uh, I did not know that uh, Kirk Douglas was offered the role or they were, were considering Charlton Heston. Um, I, I just can't imagine anybody else uh, in that role. And every now and then somebody will come up with the thing. They ought to remake Stalag 17. And I'm going, how can you remake uh, that? Martin Scorsese uh, always, not always, but has said 
uh, you don't remake a classic. You always remake a bad movie because you can't, you couldn't do it better uh, than um, uh, Stalag 17. Now, Stalag 17, which is something that a lot of people don't know, if you go Google it and read the, uh, the New York Times reviews of it from uh, when it opened up, it, re it, it refers to a successful stage play by Stalag 17, the same story, but it was comedy drama. And there is in this film uh, a lot of comedy relief because I guess in, in those days you really needed a little maybe comedy relief because the subject was uh, 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 so well entrenched that, uh, and there are certain things you couldn't say, but you could imply uh, one of the characters in Style Like 17 played by Harvey Limbeck was Shapiro. Now, for those who don't know, Shapiro is a Jewish name, but and he's in a Nazi prisoner of war camp. Uh, you want me to draw your roadmap? But not once in the movie was the word Jewish or Yuten um, uh, ever mentioned. You just had to figure that out. So they had these little comedic routines between Harvey Lembeck and Robert Strauss who played a character called uh, uh, Animal. Yeah, Animal. And yeah, both, both, with... both actors had been in the original stage play. Yeah, and uh, uh, Animal's actual uh, character name is Stanislavski Rosner. And, uh, and, and it's really uh, just, I mean, it's, it's interesting to, to see, you know, because I think today, if you made that movie today, you wouldn't need... Uh, here I'm telling Billy Wilder how to remake a movie. Uh, you wouldn't need to have the comic relief to the extent that Stalag 17 had it because the drama would would be just as, you know, you're, you're on the edge of the seat. Who did it? Who's the guy? Who's the spy? Yeah, but I, 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 I find that the comic relief sets this movie apart. Uh, there's just something, first of all, the way that characters interacted back in the 50s, uh, the way that they're introduced, um, I just find that it was an interesting way to bring them to the forefront. You know, the, com the comedic relief was one of the things that attracted me to the movies. Now, interestingly, I think I saw The Great Escape before I saw Stalag 17. I did not see Stalag 17 in the movie theaters like you did. The Great Escape is my favorite movie of all time. I've written about it. I've done documentaries about it. But it's funny when you compare The Great Escape to the Stalag 17, I get the impression that Stalag 17 is more realistic, more accurate. In, in The Great Escape, everybody looks terrific. They have immaculate uniforms. They look like they came right out of central, you know, central wardrobe. Whereas in, in Stalag 17, and this was one of the complaints, I think Paramount was complaining that the men were walking around in their underwear, which of course probably was exactly what happened. And the camp looks filthy. The walls are dirty. The floors are dirty. The food looks horrible. The men look grumpy uh, and sullen. And uh, it just, there's something that from the very get-go makes you feel that this is a real prison camp. And of course, the was written, originally the play was written by two prisoners. Well, I, um, here again, uh, you and I are on the same wavelength there. Um, there's a couple of scenes in Stalag 17 where the, uh, 
the prisoners have to go outside and stand at attention where the commandant played by Otto Preminger uh, inspects and you can just feel the bad weather. It was, uh, you know, it was just, uh, uh, I mean, there's a line in Stalag 17 where there's a situation where the um, Geneva Convention person is going to come and inspect uh, the um, the barracks to make sure everything is up to uh, 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 the, the what was agreed upon. And there was a line in there where uh, Otto Premature uh, gives them uh, fresh blankets so they can say to the inspector, you know, it's, look how well we take care of our prisoners. And he picks up the blanket and sniffs it. And he says, smells a lot like some mothballs. How long have they been here? A day? <laughs> They're going away tomorrow. Uh, but uh, I just can't see. Uh, uh, I mean, I can't think that they did it any better just to visualize what it was like in that uh, barracks, which was, uh, uh, you know, where all the sergeants uh, lived. And uh, the uh, everybody in the barracks was airmen, sergeant air uh, sergeants and, and airmen and um you put a bunch of sergeants together uh in an, in and itself is an interesting dynamics or as or as cookie says you've got a whale of a situation I, when, like all of billy wilder's movies he likes to start with a narration and this movie starts with gil stratton who plays cookie clarence harvey cook cookie for short who stammers a little bit um I love the way he starts and says, uh, I don't know about you, but I always hated those war pictures all about gorillas in the Philippines and flying leathernecks. There was never really a picture about POWs. And in many ways, Stalag 17 wasn't the first movie about POWs because they had done Grand Illusion back in the day with Eric von Stroheim. But I think for popular audiences, this is probably their first brush with POWs. I think so. Um... And here again, as you said earlier, uh, in the podcast, I mean, William Holden received an Academy Award for his uh, portrayal of uh, Sergeant Septon. And um, uh, Gil Stratton, who was, uh, was really interesting casting because Gil Stratton was uh, the son of Monty Stratton, who was uh, a person that had physical problems, who was a major league uh, pitcher at one time. Is he, and, is he the character that Jimmy Stewart plays in the Stratton story? Yes. Oh, I, now I didn't know that. Not, not Gil, but his father. His father was, sure. Monty Stratton. And um, the, um, I mean, it was just fascinating, the fact that Septon had this footlocker full of all sorts of what we would call uh, goodies. He said it was, it was stuff that he traded with the Nazis. He said, yeah, he, uh, everybody was, there's a scene that I don't, it's not going to ruin the movie, um, that, uh, they're having, they come in for breakfast and the guy who comes in with this tub of, uh, was hammock, ham hocks. Uh, and he said, where's the ham hock? Uh, and he was dishing up their breakfast, putting the soup in a, you know, canteen or whatever. And when everyone was done, he put his socks in the thing and washed his socks in it. 
And, and this is how they ate. And uh, there was this, another scene in the movie where one of the uh, prisoners of war was getting a, a letter from home and his mother was saying something to the effect of, I, we saw a, a story that how well you all are treated and how you get this thing and you get uh, to go skiing and all of that. And, you know, it's like, the, no, they didn't do any of that. Uh, their life was very, uh, uh, was not, uh, was not great. Well, you meant, you mentioned, um, the scene where the guy's washing the socks and which of course with animal and Harry, they're, they're late for breakfast and animal says, if you stop washing your socks in my breakfast, you know, that was Edmund, Edmund Trzinski. Now Edmund Trzinski was one of the original playwrights who wrote the play. His name in the movie is called Triz. And he also gets a letter from home. He's the one who gets the letter from home from his wife saying that they found a baby on the doorstep looks just like me. And I believe it. I believe it. I believe yeah. it. <laughs> he starts off in the letter and saying, you're not going to believe this. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. And throughout the movie, he would be going, I believe it. I believe it. And, uh, um, well, you know, it, it, one of the things about the 50s, and I, I don't care what anybody says, is that the, the character actors that filled out your cast were second to none. I mean, there just were so many interesting faces. And actors, you know, we have great actors today. I'm not going to deny it. But there was something about the faces that we had. Now, obviously, we've been talking about Harry and, and, and Animal. Harry was portrayed by Harvey Lembeck, who uh, became a, a very, very famous uh, acting coach. Well, uh, Harvey Lembeck's son, uh, I can't remember his first name. Apologies. Michael. Michael, Michael. Lembeck. I worked with Michael Limbeck, uh, representing him at one time years ago. Um, the um, uh, it just was uh, it's interesting if you just look at the cast. Uh, I don't know all those at home if you have Direct TV, and this is I'm not trying to sell you a, uh, a service, but uh, because I'm sure all the TV services have the similar thing to Direct TV's Channel Five Six Six which basically shows every night uh, classic old movies. And last week I saw a 1953 movie called From Here to Eternity with Burt Lancaster and uh, Deborah Carl, Donna Reed, Montgomery Cliff. And, um, and here again, I go back to what Dick Cavett said about, I love old movies. They just don't seem to make them anymore. It's interesting because um, when, um... William Holden was nominated for Best Actor that year. Two of his opponents were Monty Clift and Burt Lancaster, who were also nominated for Best Actor. And I think that they might have split their vote that way. That was a great year for actors. Um, the, other, the other actor, Robert Strauss, who plays Animal, or as you point out, Stanislaus Kosava, um, he, he became a bit of a, a wilder favorite because uh, Billy cast him four years later in um, Seven Year Itch, she played the, uh, the, uh, the landlord of the building. Uh, Robert Strauss was very funny in this. One of my favorite scenes of his, they're standing at, at Sefton's bar. And, you know, as, as Cookie points out, uh, Sefton created a bar in their own barracks and he sold, he sold uh, schnapps at two, two cigarettes a shot. Some people called it the flamethrower, but it wasn't that bad. When, when, uh, when I think uh, 
I think Harvey Lembeck takes a, uh, takes a swig and starts choking. He says, what are you trying to feed us, nitric acid? And <laughs> Sefton says, what did you expect for two cigarettes? Uh, Eight-year-old bot, um, bottled and bond? <laughs> uh, that was a very funny line. And, it uh, was very funny. But, very you know, that's funny. how these prisoners lived. I mean, they lived under fear and under strictest. I mean, they were all military people, so they understood... Uh, discipline and you know lights out met lights out and the bugle would uh, they didn't have a bugle they had schultz who would come in and wake everybody up and he was their alarm clock um yeah. the other thing about gil stratton who plays cookie I, I actually knew who gil stratton was because he was the sportscaster on cbs sports in those days mm -hmm. in fact i always remember gil stratton as really being up on horse racing. Now it's ironic because in the movie, he's in charge of managing the rats. They have the, they, they have the races every week and then they race the rats. Uh, and he's in charge, I think the way he describes it, he's the, you know, uh, Sefton is the owner of the Stalag 17 Turf Club. He was the presiding steward, the handicapper, and he did everything except I was the stable boy for five smokes a day. And, you know, here he is very involved in uh, in racing. And of course, then, then later he became a, a racing announcer. Well, when he was on uh, Channel 2 in Los Angeles uh, doing the sports, he had a, a um, uh, his signature line was, I call him the way I see him. And there was a sportscaster friend of mine by the name of Jim Healy, who had a radio show on every day at five o'clock. He stole from Walter Winchell with the da 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 da. da is it true? And uh, everyone I knew, we never missed a Jim Healy show. And for whatever reason, Stratton uh, annoyed Jim Healy. And once Jim Healy had to do a Stratton thing, he says, "No, Gil, you don't call him the way you see him. You call him the way UPI UPI uh, UPI sees him." Associated <laughs> Press, but. Uh, uh, it was uh, uh, it was it was it was a nice role that most people who do sports on local television would never have had the opportunity to do that role. Oh, but he yeah. played with a funky, a flunky, and uh, the most meaningful. Well, there's so many meaningful dialogues in Stalag 17, but this is after uh, Septon, the William Holden character, now knows who the spy was. And um, he's having a conversation with Gil Stratton and uh, he starts off, he said, don't tell me you've gone to the other side. And Gil says, I don't know what to think. And he says, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty bad. One American ratting on another, but maybe it's not one American. Maybe that person is not an American. And he goes, well, who do you think it is? And he said, that's not the point. It's what do you do with that person once you find out? You can't uh, rat them out because the Nazis will take them out and put them in another barracks, Stalag 18 or Stalag 20 or whatever. You can't kill them because they will come in and kill you. So that kind of sets the stage that once they know who the spy is, what do you do with them? And that had to go into the the uh, the equation of how you're going to solve this problem. No, and it's and it's handled so brilliantly. Um, 
some of the other characters we should talk a little bit about of um, Otto Preminger, who was already a major director in Hollywood. In fact, the following year, he would take Robert Mitchum and Marilyn Monroe up to Canada and make uh, The River of No Return. Uh, Otto plays Oberst von Scherbach, the, the colonel in charge of the camp. And I, I have to say that he's just terrific. He was wonderful. And he was every bit that character. And uh, a situation occurred in the movie that was going to be called to the attention of his superiors. And he was so excited that he had kind of thought he had fallen out of favor with him. And this was going to elevate him. Uh, he was not going to be the commandant anymore of Stalag 17, but he was going to go higher up in the, uh, in the Nazi order. But uh, he was wonderful. And, I like, uh, by, I like the, by, by the way, when he calls his superior, he insists on putting his boots on so oh, yeah. he can click his heels, even though he's just talking on the telephone. I thought that was interesting. And just to the, his dialogue, he's addressing the prisoners and he's telling them, sergeants, I'm getting a little twee for each for Christmas for each barracks. The way he says twee is just so funny. And uh, it's ironic that uh, that uh, Preminger plays the not Nazi commandant, and he was Jewish in real life. You know, he was uh, a lot yeah. of the guys who played German Nazis were Jews at that time. Yeah, well, um, in the TV show that was somewhat patterned after this, uh, Hogan's Heroes, I believe Sid Rubin, who played Schultz, um, uh, who I think had the funniest line in the movie, despite all the uh, comic relief, um, when they, when Schultz was. Uh, showing the the kids, the guys in the barracks, his pictures when he was a wrestler in Cincinnati and one other American city, and he says, "Who's that? There, the guy with who's that person with the mustache?" But that was my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Look at all that meat. <laughs> so, but Sig oh, no, no. had played uh, various Nazis along the way, and. And of course, in the TV series, uh, Warner Klemperer, who played Colonel Klink, and John Banner, who played the TV Schultz, were also both Jews, which I thought was kind of interesting. Another actor who I think is terrific in the movie, and he's kind of William Holden's nemesis, is Neville Brand, who plays Duke. And I, I just you, 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 you they can't see, see they can't see but, you because they can't I see just pretended like I uh, lit, lit a. Uh, match on my beard yeah, uh, that's that's like one of the highlights exactly um by the way i was reading an essay on this movie today and it talks a little bit about some of the underlying currents of stalag 17 and there's a whole thing in the in this in, about the caste system that the germans would take all the uh the um non-commissioned officers and put them in a camp and all the officers in a separate camp but uh, in, in our movie, Stalag 17, uh, they, uh, an officer arrives uh, who's been arrested possibly for sabotage. And this is Lieutenant Dunbar. And he's a lieutenant who should, shouldn't be in this camp, although they do mention that he's waiting to be transferred to the officer camp in yeah. Silesia. Who was the actor that played the guy that was arrested with Dunbar? Yes, yes. He played an actor that did the impressions. That actor's name was Jay Lawrence. 
He Was played that? Sergeant Bagradian, who comes along with with uh, Dunbar. And I think that uh, part of Billy Wilder's uh, augmentation of the original play was to add comical moments. And I think the addition of this impressionist was uh, some nice comic relief. Didn't you think so? I did. And, uh, you know, it was it was interesting um, how um, uh, they kind of told Dunbar and this guy uh, don't t be careful what you say around here because there's there's a spy going on and uh, uh, but the the impressionist had a big mouth and he he told the uh, the spy how uh, they bombed the railway car which was kind of interesting but I mean everything about the movie I I thought was lights out interesting um, it had everything a movie would like to have it had intrigue drama suspense uh the way they wrapped up the story oh my goodness uh it just was um uh it, it was so good i mean i hope we haven't given anything away for those who no no i think we've been very careful i mean uh you know the the casting uh we've been talking about all the different casts. by the way the person who plays uh, lieutenant james schuyler dunbar is actor don taylor and yeah. for those of us who love the 1950s, Don Taylor probably first came to people's attention as Elizabeth Taylor's fiance in Father of the Bride from about three years earlier. And Don Taylor went on to become a film director. And he actually directed one of my favorite films of the 80s, a film you probably know, Stan, called The Final Countdown with Kirk Douglas. It's about a, an aircraft carrier, the Nimitz, that goes through a time warp and ends up off Pearl Harbor uh, before the attack. And that was directed by Don Taylor. So he became, a, I think he also directed one of the Planet of the Apes movies as well. Um, this, uh, this movie um, just plays and plays. And I think that, I, I'm not surprised that you and I watch it a lot because, um, and some people might not understand rewatching classic movies over and over, but I find if you want to listen to a Mozart, you put on a record album or a CD or whatever. If you want to go to a museum and look at some uh, Van Goghs, you look at museum uh, Van Goghs. But I find such enjoyment in putting on these movies. And I've taken it one further, and I think I've told you this before. I play the audio while I'm shaving. And as a screenwriter, I find out it helps me you know, craft dialogue by listening to masters. Well, we do certain things which uh, maybe it's because I enjoy doing them or maybe because uh, we have nothing else to do. But sometime in the month of December, we will watch Elf. Uh, sometime on or about July 4th, we will watch Yankee Doodle Dandy. And uh, these you know, we missed a year every now and then. Okay, so be it. Every year at Thanksgiving, and you have to understand why you're going. This is going to beg for an explanation. I try to watch Broadway Danny Rose <laughs> because I have a theory, and I'll be brief because we're kind of running out of time. I think, but um, uh, Thanksgiving is one of the holidays that has its own special feel to it, and I've often said that you could blindfold me, put me in a room lock the door and just three times a day slide in a trade of food 
and I would be able to tell you which day was Thanksgiving because it has a, a special feel to it. And in Broadway, Danny Rose, they have a Thanksgiving dinner and he captured, Woody Allen captured that feel. So that's why I watch Broadway, Danny Rose every year at Thanksgiving. Oh. And I, I try to watch Halloween, the original John Carpenter film around October 31st, if I can. And New Year's Eve, uh, that's kind of a bit of a kaleidoscope of different types of movies, although I do like Ocean's Eleven, the original with uh, Frank Sinatra as a nice New Year's Eve title. Um, let's get back to Stalag 17. I want to mention a couple of behind the scenes details. The film was shot in what is now contemporary Calabasas on the Paramount Ranch. Uh, they filmed it there. And interestingly, Billy Wilder decided to film the sh make the movie in sequence, which is very unusual for filmmaking, particularly in the 1950s. Uh, they would shoot out a sequence to save money because uh, they would just shoot a set over and over again until it was filmed out. But he wanted, apparently, most of the cast was not aware of who the, the spy was. So it, it added to the credibility of the performances, which I thought was interesting. Did they not, were they not given script, the script? You know, that's a good question. And I, I don't know if that's possible to go the whole movie without knowing who, perhaps they left out those famous 10 minutes from the end and didn't want to give it away. But Billy was very canny in the way he directed. Um, apparently Holden had a little, been a little reluctant to take the role because he thought he was, that Sefton was not a very likable person. And in many ways, he was out for himself. Um, you know, I think that it was always what was Sefton dealing with, not really everybody else's concern for him. And um, Um, so we were talking about uh, the fact they were shooting the movie in continuity, and which was unusual at that time. The other thing I wanted to point out, the concept of a bunch of shabby prisoners, and then all of a sudden you focus on the main prisoner looking immaculate in a perfect uniform with press slacks and, and uh, just, just looking good, I think is repeated a couple more times. Um, Let's see, this was 53. Um, a few years later, James Clavell's novel King Rat was released as a movie. You'll remember King Rat, Stan, with uh, George Siegel playing a Sefton-type character in a Japanese prison camp. Do you remember that movie? Uh, we used to represent, uh, when I worked for uh, Jay Bernstein, uh, James Clavell. Oh, okay. And James Clavell was also one of the writers of The Great Escape, so he was well-versed in... In, uh, I think they brought James Clavell into The Great Escape because they needed more of an English presence because the original screenplay was written by W.R. Burnett, uh, the American crime fiction writer. Um, the other movie I point out, which was uh, made a few years after that, is Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun, where John Malkovich, again, plays a Sefton-type character the obvious influence is there. I mean, he's basically immaculate in this very dingy Japanese prison camp where young Christian Bale comes as a as a as a um, 
a, pers a young person separated from his parents. So the idea of, of, of a, of a sharp-witted, uh, real uh, kind of a, the ultimate scrounger like Sefton is a character that other people were copying, and I'm not surprised. Well, Sefton's character, uh, the, the press, I mean, he took care of himself. And that was his whole M.O. that he, uh, he, as he said in somewhere in the film, that he traded with the Nazis. If it uh, took a little more to get a little more, uh, he would do it. And uh, he was kind of a, a light years ahead of most of those people as far as getting things done. And no, he wasn't particularly likable. He didn't hate him, but he wasn't likable. Uh, they made that pretty clear from the beginning that uh, he was not the you know, he was not the most favorite person out there. I mean, uh, there was other characters in the um, uh, in the film that were all likable to a degree. Uh, well, I have to say, by casting Holden, you know, William Holden arguably one of the most handsome actors ever to be on the big screen, even when his face is all pummeled because they beat him up at one time. I think the fact that it was Holden as as kind of, uh, uh, you know, self-possessed as he was and so focused on his own interests, uh, I think Kirk Douglas would not have gotten the same reaction that Holden did. I, Kirk Douglas is very good playing a cad and that about that, I think the year before Stalag 17 was made, they, he was in The Bad and the Beautiful, another one of my favorite films of the 50s. And he was perfectly cast there. And of course, he had done Wilder's Ace in the Hole, uh, playing the most cynical of reporters. But there was something about Holden that even when he's a real jerk, he's likable. Yeah, well put. And, you know, it's just, you know, I think about, Sooner, I mentioned earlier in the podcast about remaking the movie and why I'm glad they haven't. Um, but if they did, I don't know what you would change. I don't know how you would upgrade it. I mean, it. Well, first gotta, of all, yeah. First of all, we haven't talked about black and white. I mean, the fact that I think part of the fact that Stalag Seventeen looks so kind of gritty and The Great Escape looks so pretty is that wonderful black and white photography at that time. And I think that um, you can't make Stalag 17 in color. It's just not going to work. It's just not going to work the same way. Well, um, you know, I, here again, I haven't seen the movie since last night. And I don't see <laughs> that movie in black and white. I didn't, it didn't say like, I didn't go, well, I'm, I'm watching a black and white movie. I'm watching an incredible film where there is somebody who's a spy who we don't know who it is and we're not going to know who it is until about 60% through. And how we find out who it is is genius uh, from a facial expression on the spy's uh, face when he sees something which is the code that there's some a message needs to be... Uh, uh, looked at and it just it was just everything about that movie uh, I, I don't ever recall a movie that is similar where you didn't know who the bad guy really was and how the bad guy got exposed uh, and it was sheer genius on how they exposed him 
Um, there were so many things about that um, uh, movie that uh, gets uh, aces in my book. I don't know whether or not uh, uh, your uh, listeners on your podcast, Steve, whether they send you emails or send you postcards and all that, but I would like to know, and someday you'll tell me because you'll find out, uh, how many people have never seen uh, Stalag 17 are now going to go watch it. And I'll give you a small hint. It's on uh, uh, pay-per-view if you have uh, DirecTV, uh, and DirecTV airs it, I don't know, every five, six, seven months. Uh, let me just double-check to see whether or not it's still on pay-per-view on DirecTV. Hold on. Uh, the Turner Classic Movie sorry. runs it occasionally too, and I think it's probably the whole movie's probably available on YouTube these days. The YouTube seems to it be is part. it is yeah. totally available on YouTube, right? Um, but here again, um, I have an aversion to watching things on my 15-inch computer uh, uh, screen. Um, Starlight 17 is available on uh, on DirecTV on channel five um, uh, five something uh, for a two day rental of three dollars and ninety nine cents, and which uh, is probably a steal at that price. One of the I, I was once listening to an interview with Jack Lemon, and he was talking about the apartment which of course was the Billy's Best Picture of the Year winner seven years later in 1960. And Jack Lemmon focused in on a sequence where Miss Kubelik, played by Shirley MacLaine, is, has, has tried to commit suicide. And meanwhile, Jack Lemmon's in the apartment with this girl he's picked up, Hope Holiday. And Lemmon was pointing out how adept Billy Wilder and his co-writer I.A.L. Diamond were at mixing a horrifically dramatic moment with a comedic moment. And I think it also spells out how well he does the Stalag 17. For instance, there's one moment where they're talking about Joey. Joey is the mute member of the, the, of the barracks who has been traumatized, probably an extreme case of post-traumatic stress disorder where he's become a catatonic. And you know they're dealing with Schultz, the Sig Ruman character who's funny, and then all of a sudden, uh, uh, Richard Erdman, who plays Hoffy, comes to you know you know comes to Joey's defense because you know Sh uh, Sh uh, Schultz is saying you know he's probably just play acting, and then of course Hoffy says no. What if you had seen the guts of nine pals spread all over your plane? That's that's an example of how he could go back from dr drama to a bit of comedy. Um, it's just it's just the the movie that keeps keeps on giving. Yes, it does. And if I, I don't know how long it's been since you've seen the entire movie. Um, for me, it's been about 24 hours, but I always pick up something new that I didn't see before. I guess that's the case anytime you watch a movie you've seen before. But um, the, um, uh, I, I look for clues in this movie that if I'd never seen this movie and I knew there was a spy, would I be able to figure it out before that 115 minute mark where uh, Wilder lets the audience know who it is. I don't think I would have. No, he really kept you on the edge of his seats. 
Well, we have had a delightful conversation with Stan Rosenfield about one of our favorite films of all time. Uh, Stalag 17, as Stan points out, is always available somewhere in the streaming universe. And if you have not seen the movie, you are in store for a big treat. Um, I often, I think I've told you a couple times, Stan, I don't think you could remake this today because invariably they would make it in color and those barracks would not look as drab in color unless you washed out the color. Although I do think that if I had my druthers today, I would like to see George Clooney play Sefton, although he's probably a little older than the role should call, but he plays very young. Uh, he would be a good Sefton, but they're not going to remake this movie because they're just not going to remake this movie. <laughs> well, um, the um, I agree with you. I think uh, George Clooney would make a, if they ever did it, he would make a, a super good choice. Um, I just don't know if they remade it, what the, how they would change. I mean, when I watched it last night, I, there's one scene in there that I thought, you know, they don't need that scene. That scene, we get the relationship between the animal and uh, Shapiro. You don't need to see them dancing at the Christmas party. You could take that scene out and uh, it would tighten the movie four minutes and it would be better. But I don't know what you would take out or what you would add. I really don't. Um, it's a movie of its times. I mean, at least eight years after World War II, it was the right time. People were interested in stories about the war at that time, and it plays as a period film. Anyway, it doesn't get much better than that. You've been listening to Saturday Night the Movies. Um, I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. We've been listening to my ex-boss, Stan Rosenfield, and I'm so glad I replaced that pen and pencil set with the poster stand because uh, we can both share that moment. Did I ever send you a copy, a photograph of the poster with Billy Wilder's? Uh... Yes, you oh, okay. sent it recently and I love that. I love that, it's, uh, okay. it's great. And uh, stay well out there, keep doing the good things you do and we'll see you next time. Steve, thanks so much. This is a good, this is really, a, I really look forward to this since you asked me to do this and uh, uh, you did not disappoint, okay? Thank you so much.